0: cannot think of <clears throat> better songs to sing this morning in light of the text, and I'm not surprised by that. The Holy Spirit tends to do that uh, quite often, and uh, I just got to try to hold it together here with that last one. Um, there's been a lot of preaching already this morning, I don't know if you've noticed. Cameron, you're a good preacher. Um, if you don't think he's preaching in the song, you're missing it. He is preaching. These words are rich with spiritual doctrinal truths that uh, that get us through life. And um, I hope you don't see it as just singing songs. Uh, we are receiving the word and we are singing back to God in praise. And we get to do it together. It's a glorious thing. And um, so I just want to thank Cameron and the team, music team, for that. I need to do a quick intro because I feel like I've got two sermons to preach today. Brian's encouraged me to take two, but I don't know, I think I'm going to try to get through here, but it is one message, and as we continue through the book of Luke, I want to give just a quick uh, context and a couple reminders about some events that are leading up to where we are in chapter 7. Because it's important, I think, for us to remember that these different weekly little nuggets that we get each week are part of a much bigger story, part of a big, consistent message that Luke has for us. And we need to not miss that there's a continuous flow. And it's easy as we sit here, as we come week to week, to kind of think of these truths as little individual little chunks that we take it and... Or leave it and we forget about it and we lose the context and so we always need to keep the content in mind we need to do the best we can each week as we come up here and we preach whether it's me Levi Brian um, whoever's up here Tom coming up next Matt we need to do our best to keep that continuous thought going before us and we need to remember that Christ is the content he is everything and the purpose is our certainty And conformity to Christ needs to be in our view as we approach God's Word, all to the glory of God. So going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing for us the heart of a true believer, a heart that is full of faith and a life of faith, kingdom living for all who are trusting in Jesus as their Savior. And Christ sets a very high bar, loving enemies, doing things that are impossible to do without the Holy Spirit, without a new heart. And we need to remember that there are a lot of blessings for those who are poor. It says, blessed are those who are poor, for they shall have the kingdom. Blessed are the hungry, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep, for there will be laughter. And blessed are the persecuted, for their reward is in heaven, and that gives cause for rejoicing. Jesus says, and it seems clear to me that the anticipated emotion or the state of being that Christ wants for us is a state of flourishing, of blessedness, of joy, of happiness in Him. We sang about it this morning, right? It is well with our soul. That's what we're talking about. When trials of life come, and they will, we're talking about an inner joy We can sing from our hearts that it is well with my soul. With every promise of having the kingdom, of being satisfied, of laughing and having joy, all rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Luke is telling us, and reminding us week after week, and so I'm reminding you week after week, at least for two weeks, Jesus is everything. Without Jesus, there is no kingdom to be had, no king, no wise ruling over us, only hopeless chaos, self-rule, only misery as you and me and the people around us remain in subjection to our sin and our selfishness, enslaved to a master that only brings death. Without Jesus, there is no being satisfied, only hunger. And craving and longing for things that have no hope of satisfying us. A life of that. Without Jesus, there is no laughter. There's no hope of laughter. Only weeping. With the certainty of wrath to come. No hope for our sins being paid for. And without Jesus, there is no reward waiting for us. Therefore, no basis for persecution bringing joy or having joy through persecution. Can't say with Paul, he counts the suffering of this present life unworthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. Without Jesus, there's no glory to coming. Only pain, only persecution, only senseless beatings, and well-deserved pity from the world. Look at guys like John the Baptist and say, you gave your life for this? But this guy, Jesus, he was a fake. He was nothing. Without Jesus, there is no blessed, it is well with my soul. There is no joy, no flourishing, only woe is me, only hopeless misery. So Luke is telling us that Jesus is everything, and he is worth submitting our lives to. He does, as we talked about last week, have the ultimate authority to bring him out all these promises that we cling to in Scripture. And he is able to satisfy the deepest needs of our hearts. Only he can do this. So as we move into the text this morning, let's pray and, uh, and we'll get going. Father, we come before you this morning in desperate need of help. Life has such a, 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 an annoying way of clouding our view, distracting us. And Lord, we need to see you. It's what this message is about. And so I pray this morning that you, by your spirit and your word, that you would give us a clear sight of you, of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and may it encourage us to live lives that bring honor and glory to you. So our passage for this week is Luke chapter 7, 18 through 35. It's kind of a lofty effort, but I, I'm, I'm determined to try. And like every week, we are asking this question, what is Luke seeking to put on display for us this week through this story involving Jesus, this guy, John the Baptist, and the crowds that are following Jesus? My main point is this. My main point is that the ultimate, number one blessing in all the universe is to see Jesus for who he is and to joyfully receive him. Say it again. The ultimate blessing in all the universe is to see Jesus for who he is and to joyfully receive him. So let's start in verse 18 through 20. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, to feel the weight of this question by John, I think we need a little background on him as a person. First of all, he had quite a unique role and quite a unique ministry. One, John was the promised forerunner to the Messiah. 400 years prior, Malachi had said, This is, I mean, Jesus said it actually himself, where he said, This is he of whom it is written, speaking of John, saying, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you? This was a prophesied role that John was to play, and he was the forerunner to the Messiah. Also, John was filled with the Holy Spirit. We learned in the beginning of Luke from Matt, shared with us in Luke chapter 1, that he will be great before the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That was John's role. That was his ministry. And John baptized many, one of which, Jesus. John chapter 1 says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit, imagine this, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, "He on whom you see the Spirit descend to remain, this is he who baptizes not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit." And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God talking about Jesus." I can't think of a more validating sight than what he witnessed. At Jesus' baptism, a dove descending on a person after being told it would happen this way and likely hearing an audible voice from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. John was no average guy with average experiences and average ministries. In fact, verse 28, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. This man had seen Jesus for who he was And John seemed pretty certain that Jesus was the Christ. So what's going on with this question? Why is John now, after all he had seen and heard about this guy, Jesus, asking if he's the one or if we're supposed to look for another? Now, it might help to know that John is asking this question from jail, from prison. He's been arrested by Herod because he boldly spoke the truth about his infidelities, his adulterous marriage to Herodias. So if the Messiah has come and is here to bring in the kingdom, why am I in this dungeon? I was doing my job. I was telling Herod and everyone else within shouting distance to repent, be baptized. I was doing my job to prepare the way for the Messiah. What is going on? I know that I must decrease so that Jesus must increase, but how decreased will I need to get before the Messiah releases the captives? Have you forgot about me, Lord? Now, surely you can empathize with John here. He's not alone. His life of faith, like ours, is a fight of faith. And this fight of faith is a fight to see Jesus for who He is. And as we have talked about in previous Sundays and Wednesday nights and across dinner tables before, Jesus is not to be seen as we define Him. He is the promised Messiah, and He did come to free the captives. But not, perhaps, like John and others had thought. We see this in the confusion of the disciples, right? Right? Even up to the point of his ascension, they were thinking, is now the time where you're going to bring in the kingdom, take care of this Rome issue? Nope. Not yet. Rest assured, it's being set up. It's happening, but not like you thought, or not yet anyways. But it's coming, not like you thought. Yes, John knew Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He called him the Lamb of God. He knew who he was. And in that culture, let's face it, lambs didn't reign or rule over anything. Lambs had one, pretty much one job, to be slaughtered for the sins of the people. That was their role. So John wasn't confused about who Jesus was when he called him the Lamb of God. But it's not that unreasonable to think that he may have been a bit confused on the events of redemption as they played out, especially his role. So beyond the idea that our fight of faith is a fight to see Jesus for who he is on his terms, as he defines it, we also need to see that, and I think this story bears out, that in our fight of faith, our situations and our circumstances can sometimes cloud an accurate view of Christ and of ourselves. And this can shake our faith. It can suck the life and joy out of our souls with all the types of anxieties and fears that rise up in its place. I know I experience this at times, and I assume you do as well. I'm not saying, John, is in some huge crisis of faith here, but I am saying that These questions indicate to me that he needs to be reminded of something to help him kind of reorient, recalibrate his heart, his mind, to help him get back to a big, big, big view of Jesus and for him to stay low. So let's see how Jesus answers John in verse 21. In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So here's the point that Luke is making, the works of Christ. Bear witness to his being the promised one of Israel. He proved it over and over again, and he gives us reason to rejoice in him. He's the one, he's the promised one. Blind receive their sight, lame walk. We've learned about this, right, in the chapters leading up to where we are in Luke. Lepers cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Jesus is and has proved. He is the one. Even Jesus said, reading about himself from Isaiah, he opened the scrolls and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was the one. And Jesus was demonstrating to the world, both Jew and Gentile alike. Remember the centurion? He had seen it. He was demonstrating to the world that he possessed the power and authority that was reserved for God alone. And proving beyond the shadow of a doubt that he was the promised one of Israel. And how cool is it that Jesus shows these two disciples of John the miracles firsthand so that they can bring back their own eyewitness accounts of what Jesus was doing. They no longer were just reserved, you know, re- relying on what they had heard about Jesus. They had seen it firsthand. And they could pass that on to John. He said, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. So here's another point. Jesus uses the experiences of others to encourage us in our fight to see. We are not intended, Dad talked about this this morning, we are not intended to fight alone. Do not isolate yourself, or you will be cutting yourself off from one of God's primary means of encouragement in your life. Your experiences, your sightings of God as you walk through life are not intended just for you. They are intended to be an encouragement to someone else around you. Someone else in this body of faith. When their moment of need comes, and it will. We must be in community with one another for this reason. Jesus uses the experiences of others to encourage us in our fight to see. Remember that. Verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, this is where I get kind of the part B of the main point. Main point said that the ultimate blessing in all the universe is to see Jesus for who He is. And I believe verse 23 tells us that. And it's also that we joyfully receive Him. The word offended means repelled, caused to stumble or to turn away. Listen to how this same word is used And translated in Jesus' conversation with his disciples. Right before his betrayal and arrest. Matthew 26 verse 31 tells us. Then Jesus said to them. You will all fall away. Because of me tonight. For it is written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up. I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, you gotta love Peter. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That fall away is the same word we're talking about here. Well, Peter, of course, did go on to fall away. In spite of his zeal, he did fall away that very same night by denying Jesus three times. And every single disciple scattered just as Jesus said it would. Their hearts in that moment couldn't bear seeing Jesus as the curse of mankind that was headed to a cross. Their heart couldn't imagine that that's what Jesus came to do. They couldn't bear it. And after all, what would this mean for them as his followers? So they fell away. They scattered. They were offended by this soon-to-be-crucified Jesus. And I think it would be safe to say that their souls in that moment we're not flourishing, we're not happy in that moment. There's no joy for these disciples as they scattered and as they fell away. Jesus is telling John, his disciples, and he's telling us today, blessed and happy is the one who sees me for who I am. The way I want to be seen on my terms and according to my sovereign plan. Yes, it may be confusing at times. Yes, it may be fearful at times. But blessed is the one who sees me for who I really am and joyfully receives me, trusts me, and finds their joy in me. They don't fall away no matter what. A clearer, more accurate view of Christ, His power, His wisdom, His authority, His holiness, all these attributes that are spoken of in this book, we need them. And it's the only way that we can and will have security and joy in our life is if we have a clearer view of Him, of Christ. And we will have unbelievable peace and joy and security if our eyes stay focused on Him. Even if we have to be reminded of it a thousand times a day, Jesus is there, patiently standing with you in your confusion and in your time of fear. He's there with you. He can handle it. So what are those seasons of doubt or falling away look like for you? Do they tend to last for weeks, maybe for months? Or have you found that these times t- to be getting shorter and less frequent in your life? If so, praise God for that. But maybe not. Maybe it's continuing. Maybe you find yourself often in seasons of doubt and fear and Losing sight of Christ. Even as you've matured in your faith. You don't really sense a change in that. Always confused. Always fearful. It's okay. Go to Christ. Are there certain circumstances or situations that continue to take your focus off of Christ? Maybe it's the direction of this country. Goodness, how much that rocks us. Maybe it's the equality act that's coming down the pipe. That kind of makes us a little fearful to find out what's God up to. So fears rise up, faith sort of squanders, and we scatter, maybe. What about the spiritual condition of your children and the decisions that they make? Does the absolute chaos at home do it for you? Does it distract you? Does it take your focus off of Christ? Maybe it's about your income. Maybe it's about the things you want to do. And you just don't have the income to do it anymore. Jobs threaten. Maybe it's declining health for yourself or for a loved one. We talked last week that Jesus has authority over all of that. He is in control, and He continues to tell us, like He told John through His disciples, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who does not fall away when circumstances that I ordained, by the way, are not what you expected or not what you want. When you are in those times of doubt and your faith is being tested by your circumstances, don't panic, don't look away, and don't think it's strange either. You're not the only one to have gone through this. There is millennia of examples in Scripture. Read Hebrews, read your Bible. Examples, look around this room. There are people who are going through many trials. They are not going to change because God has purposes for those trials. We can trust Him Don't think it's strange. Look to Him. And if you can only remember two things, Dad talked about this Wednesday, he talked about it this morning. If you can only remember two things in that moment, that God is sovereign, He's in control, right? And He loves me. Just repeat that to yourself. If that's the only thing you know, God's in control and He loves me. He proved it. Repeat those words to you. Make it a point to memorize Scripture now. If you're on kind of a mountaintop experience season in your life, memorize scriptures now that will help you when you're on the bottom. Because the bottom will come. The trials will come. Memorize scripture now. Memorize promises of scripture that will help fix your gaze back on Christ when those trials come. Short and sweet daggers to help kill the fear, to kill those a tax on our faith. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is only one pleasure that is full and forever, and that is the pleasure of being in close fellowship with our Savior. Don't exchange full and forever for 80% for eight minutes, for 80 years even. Every other pleasure under the sun that threatens to take my gaze off of Christ pales in comparison. This verse often helps me remember that. I go to it all the time. The point is this, is that this book, this book is full. From Genesis to Revelation, it is full of promises to help us fight to see. Find some, memorize them, and use them. And earnestly pray that your focus would remain on Him and not on your circumstances that seem so daunting in the moment. Don't listen to the lies of the flesh and the world and the devil telling you that you're not enough. God doesn't love you. God's forgotten about you. Don't listen to them. And like John, seek out encouragement from the body. Seek out people who can help you see, to help remind you and reorient your focus, be in community. We need one another. Here's the awesome part. In that story where Jesus was telling Peter and the disciples that they were all going to fall away, there's an awesome end to that story and a perspective that Jesus reminded Peter of even before it happened this awesome reminder that when you have turned again, by God's grace, faith strengthened and your gaze fixed fully on Christ again, listen to the words that Jesus tells Peter in that moment before it happened. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What an awesome privilege and an awesome opportunity that when God brings us through things that are trials, and we receive the encouragement from the Lord that Jesus is praying for us that we would not lose our faith, we use that encouragement to strengthen our brothers when we turn. Peter did. In God's sovereignty, He often calls us to go through trials and difficulties that test our faith, that rock us. And sometimes He does it just so that we can help someone else who might be going through, in His sovereignty, something very similar a week from now. Don't miss the opportunity. Don't waste the experience that God has given you. Be on the lookout for those who are struggling To see, sometimes when you're the one struggling, the last thing you want to do is go talk to somebody. Last thing you want to do is go seek out encouraging words. So we need to be the ones to go look for others who are struggling if you happen to be in a good spot. It truly is a blessing, both to yourself and to those in this body, to have eyes that see Jesus for who He is, and joyfully receive him. It is the ultimate blessing in all the universe. Ryan, I think I've got time. Moving on to verse 24. 24 through 30. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet <clears throat> the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this and tax collectors too They declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. In this section, Jesus is looking to validate John's message and his ministry while exposing the hearts of people in the crowd, of which we'll see two different main types of people in the crowd. So he asked some questions of the crowd. He says, When you sought to learn more about this guy, John, this self proclaimed fulfillment of Malachi, and to hear his message, what did you expect to see? As the supposed forerunner to the Messiah, did you expect a fragile little quiet messenger? A humble, lowly presentation? Is that what you wanted to see? Or did you come out preferring to see a more powerful, kingly presence? Something more in line with royalty, would that have been more attractive to you? More compelling? With whatever you saw, did you find yourself disappointed? Turned away? Well, for the Pharisees, of course, yes, they did. They rejected him. But there's another group. When you came to hear John, did you come with no expectations at all? No preferences. You just wanted to hear from God. And you heard John's message, and because you were given ears to hear, you responded in faith by submitting to the baptism that he talked about of repentance. To you, John was the prophet talked about by Malachi. You were convinced of it. He was the forerunner to the Messiah who was here to bring in the kingdom of God. You didn't understand all the details. You didn't understand how it was all going to play out, but you wanted to hear from God. Whether it was a lowly message or an exalted, majestic one, it didn't matter. John spoke for God, so you were going to identify with him, and most importantly, you were going to trust the one that He was pointing you to for the forgiveness of your sins. So, do you see the two types of people? It's pretty obvious. Those who, number one, those who had submitted themselves to John's baptism of repentance, and they weren't overly concerned about how it was packaged. That wasn't the point. Group number two are those who had not submitted themselves to John's baptism of repentance. They rejected his message, saying, the forerunner just wasn't quite what I thought he'd be. Didn't quite live up to my expectations. So Jesus goes on to say, verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? Talking about that second group, rejecting Pharisees and lawyers. What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was comparing the rejecting Pharisees and lawyers to children who couldn't be enticed to dance or weep no matter what music was being played. If a flute, they would find it too upbeat, preferring something more somber. If it was a dirge or a somber funeral music, they would find it too gloomy, preferring something more upbeat. They were never going to be satisfied always wanting the opposite tune until that opposite was played and then they'd want the opposite again. Their hearts were closed to anything except what was tuned to their own preference in the moment. Jesus is drawing a correlation between those who reject John's message and those who rejected Jesus' message. No matter how the message, same message, by the way, two different presentations, no matter how the message was packaged, whether it was John's ascetic denial of food and drink, or whether it was Jesus's eating and drinking and associating with parties and tax collectors, they were going to find fault and reject the message and and the messenger. And since John's message of repentance pointed the people to Christ, to accept John's message was to accept Jesus himself. But to reject John's message was to reject Jesus. And Jesus is really driving home the infinite difference between the heart that sees Jesus for who he is and joyfully receives him and the dead rejecting heart of stone that will not, indeed, Paul says, cannot, do anything but reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter how it's packaged, no matter how it's presented. So the reality is this, that Jesus is alone. He is the one who has ultimate authority over dead hearts of stone, like the Pharisees, like us, when our hearts were dead. So until Jesus acts to remove that heart of stone and put in a heart that is able to hear the message and respond in faith, there they will sit. Our friends, our co-workers, our children, they will sit there guilty of rejecting Jesus Christ until God does something. So here are the implications, I think, for us today. Now, primarily this second half of this is about the rejecting, unbelieving heart of the Pharisees, but we often act like them sometimes, right? So the first one, I think, is do you come here on Sunday mornings to hear the word of the Lord with some type of expectation or preference that you just need to leave at the door, leave it in the parking lot? Like the rejecting Pharisees, do you arrogantly come with preferences for certain preaching styles? or music selections, or whatever? Do you prefer a PowerPoint? If you don't have something on the screen, are you distracted by that? Are you lost? Will you be turned off to anything that isn't tuned to your particular preference or desire, always critical, never satisfied in what you come to see? As an alternative, I want to encourage you to be like the first group of people who humbly just wanted to come and hear from God. Whether there were drums playing too loudly or just the piano, whether Brian is yelling at us, or James is wooing us to sleep, or wearing jeans and tennis shoes, those details shouldn't affect us. They shouldn't distract us from why we're here, to hear from God. We just want to hear the word accurately preached, and we want to sing praises to our God. Let that be our approach on Sunday mornings. It's one of those, if the shoe fits, wear it. If not, just leave it. Second implication, I think, is As someone who has this message of hope in Jesus Christ, and are, I hope, taking this message to the lost people around us in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces, and even in our churches, stop trying to adjust or repackage the message of the gospel to suit the unbelieving heart. They will not hear it or be inclined to submit to the truth about Jesus, no matter how you package it. Just be faithful to be true. Keep faithfully sharing the message of the gospel. Keep putting the beauty of Christ, the authority of Christ, his trustworthiness before them. Their sin and his ability to save them. Keep putting that on display for them, Christ and him crucified. And do it in both word and deed. don't just quote live the gospel we got to speak it sometimes when it's uncomfortable we have to put Christ on display both in word and in deed and lastly we need to pray pray often that God would remove the veil that keeps them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ Paul says it so clearly in 2 Timothy I'm sorry 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, he said, But we have renounced, this gets to the heart of it. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. It's a pointless exercise. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness back in Genesis. He has shown in our hearts to give us The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what these rejecting hearts need. They don't need us to soften or change the gospel message that we are sinners before a holy God and we are in desperate need of a Savior. And He is coming again to judge those who reject Him, and they will be cast into an eternal hell. Or there will be no joy, nothing but misery without Christ. But there is hope. So we need God to act, and we need to be faithful to preach the word, to share the truth of Jesus to the nations. Verse thirty-five. Yet, in contrast to these Pharisees, wisdom is justified by all her children. As far as Jesus was concerned, the lives of those who had accepted John's message of repentance and received him as their Savior was proof enough in the validity of this message. The wisdom of God is indeed proved right by the fruitful lives of those who hear the words of Jesus and joyfully obey him. Tom gets the great privilege of speaking of another fruit of that wisdom next week. So come back and enjoy hearing about the fruit of wisdom. May we be a people who truly see Jesus for who he is. And joyfully receive him as the greatest treasure in all the universe. Amen.